Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. February the 1st, 2022 was the first day of the Chinese New Year. And one thing that many people in China do to celebrate New Year is to travel. So today's episode explores the wonderfully rich history of travel and travel writing in Imperial China. We're especially going to focus on the late Ming Dynasty. The Ming ruled China from 1368 to 1644. And around the same time that the Mayflower was landing on Cape Cod, on the other side of the world in China a thriving tourist industry, and a whole and variegated literary genre of travel writing sprung up. This phenomenon produced for historians sources that give extraordinary insight into the society and culture of the late Ming. My guest today is James Hargett. He is Professor of Chinese Studies at the University of Albany, the State University of New York. His research focuses on the prose literature travel diaries, and cultural history of traditional China. He's the author of six books, of which his most recent is Jade Mountains and Cinnabar Pools, The History of Travel Literature in Imperial China, 2018. I started by asking him the significance of the Chinese New Year. I spent New Year's in China many, many times. It is a time when everyone, if they have the means, they must go home. If their parents are alive, grandparents are alive, the pressure to go home is even greater. China is on a lunar calendar. It follows faces of the moon rather than the sun. So typically Chinese New Year comes sometime mid-late January, early mid-February on our calendar. Here in the States and UK, we typically celebrate holidays for a day or two, right? The New Year celebration in China lasts for two weeks. Firecrackers, fireworks, lots of eating, lots of drinking of alcohol, lots of more drinking of alcohol, spending time with family. First time you experience it, it's pretty cool. But after the fireworks go off at three o'clock in the morning for about 10 days, Oh, it gets a little old. But it's still a fun time if you've never been to China during the New Year. They call it the Spring Festival there, although it's typically in the wintertime. I encourage you to go. It's great fun. How long have the Chinese, as far as you're aware, been celebrating 
this New Year festival? How far back in time does it go? Almost 3,000 years. Wow. The celebrations for New Year's go back as far as the written records go. Well, that is amazing. So in marking this new year in China, we are joining in a continuous sequence of festivities over 3,000 years. That's just what we want to do on a history podcast. That's wonderful. Well, today we're going to be focusing on one particular aspect which you've written so wonderfully about. And we're going to be thinking about the late Ming period especially, and we're going to be thinking about travel writing. And your book makes clear that there is this long history, as with New Year, of sightseeing for pleasure in China. Could you start us off by just giving us a brief overview so people can situate themselves in time here? Sure. Chinese history is most often looked at, studied from the perspective of dynasties. China has a long list of dynasties, again, going back 3,000 years. The very last dynasty, the Qing dynasty, Q-I-N-G, ended in 1911. So this is a very, very long, long process. Travel writing goes back at least 2,000 years, probably longer than that. But for written records, we know it has a history of 2,000 years. I think it's very important to understand that most people who lived in China before the 20th century were not literate. Those who were literate came from families who had the means to send sons to special schools to prepare them to work in the government bureaucracy. This was the only ladder to success in what I'll call pre-modern China before the 20th century. So these were the people who wrote, and these were the people, pretty much the only people. Sure, there were some merchants and some Buddhist monks who might be traveling around the country. But for the most part, those who were able to travel were government officials. The young men who had taken these civil service examinations, had progressed through, had gotten a job in the government bureaucracy with all the attendant prestige. And typically, these officials would be posted to new administrative locations every three years. So they had opportunities to travel. Most people in traditional China, pre-modern China, tilled the land. Most were born, grew up, and died probably within a short distance of the same place. So we're talking about these government officials. Point number two, where would they want to go if they were going to write something about travel? Two destinations always, either a scenic mountain environment, beautiful mountain landscapes were very popular, or a place that's historically important, say the site of a famous battlefield. And what these government officials during their travels would do, typically take a day and go sightseeing at one of these places. And they would write down, oftentimes, the result of their experience there. So when we say travel writing, we're talking about texts that these men would write based on their experiences of going to these places. Yes, I was struck by the fact that quite a few of the translations of titles you gave were accounts of sightseeing trips to famous mountains. Mountains, even today, are still prime sightseeing sites. They have all the amenities that anybody could possibly want. Hot springs, beautiful valleys, secluded villas, places famous in history, perhaps where a famous person was born or grew up or there was some historical incident. 
these are the places that attracted these traveling officials. And you argue that Chinese travel writing is distinguished, I suppose, by the fact that it's not so much about standing and looking at a landscape. It's about movement. It's about action and traveling through it. And also that it's very much something that's created visually and sort of sensually so that the reader can experience it. And I thought these are really interesting definitions of the genre. They are. Everything that these men and some women later in the Ming and Qing periods were writing about was visual. Now, today we have cameras, we have phones, we can take a picture. When we go on vacation and we want to say hi to mom or dad, we send them a picture of us on the beach in the Virgin Islands or something. There's no text. No one sits down and writes about their experiences of going to Florida. We take pictures. What these authors were doing were producing pictures also, but with words. And how we judge them, how we understand them, oftentimes comes down to how skillfully they can make a word picture. Just taking Chinese characters and putting them all in the right order and choosing the right ones so the reader can visualize, with a little imagination thrown in, of course, what this place was like. And movement, it's not stationary, it's not static, that's boring. If someone just stands at a point and looks off in the distance and describes something, well, that might be okay. But it's much, much more, I think, pleasing, especially to the reader, if the reader can vicariously join the author in making the trip and seeing the destination through words. And this is how we judge the better travel writers from the less successful travel writers, those who make the best word pictures. They do it with language. They manipulate language in ways that suggests movement. For instance, motion verbs, lots of verbs of action directly. Here's what I did. I went three miles down this way. I turned. It was a tremendous canyon. I'm looking at all the rocks. I keep moving. Constant movement through the landscape. And it's a lot of fun to read. There are no pictures. There are no illustrations, no maps. It's all in the words. That's, I guess, one unique feature of all travel writing, really. How effectively the word picture conveys what happened in the experience to the reader. Now, the period we really want to focus on is the late Ming period, which is, say, the last 70 years of the Ming period, which is equivalent to about 1570 or so to the mid-1640s. What made this period a golden age of travel writing? That's a great question. No one has written in English as yet to provide an answer to your question, but I made some notes. There's a whole bunch of reasons, but probably the most important reasons are these. Number one, commerce expanded tremendously in the late Ming period. And when you have commerce, you have people moving. So there was much more movement of people and goods in the Ming period. Secondly, during the Ming period, the transportation network for people to move on or for goods to move through expanded tremendously. It was a lot easier to get from point A to point B, either by land or by river travel. In the 12th century, to go from Sichuan province in the southwest to where Shanghai is now, it's about 1,800 miles, it would take two months. And the Ming period, it took two weeks. Wow, that's a really massive improvement. It is. So there were more people traveling. There was greater access to transportation routes. 
And they're now, and this is the big part of the answer, a new class of people in China arose during the Ming Dynasty. They're called different names. One of the names that historians like to use is this word gentry. Families with money, families who may or may not have had folks in their family previously serve in the government bureaucracy. It could be a merchant family. There were lots of very, very rich merchant families. Obviously, if you're rich, you have access to travel. And what do you do with your leisure time? Well, one of the things that a lot of folks did was go sightseeing. Many members of this gentry class were literate, so they were in a position to write about their experiences on the road. China's most famous traveler, his name, I'm going to spell it out first, okay, and then I'll say it. It's X-U, that's the family name, X-U-X-I-A-K-E. It's pronounced Xu Xiaoke. He is a good example of a man who came from a gentry family who decided to not pursue a government career, but instead spent his life traveling around China and writing in a diary format about his experiences. So he is a very good example. There were lots of people like this who weren't officials, but who had the means, the funds, the opportunity, the leisure to travel. And many of them wrote about their experiences because they were literate. Printing, of course, is another reason. We know that the literate population of Ming China, especially the late Ming, was much higher than periods previous. We know this because of the popularity of books and publishing. The publishers wouldn't be investing in publishing books if there wasn't a readership buying the books, right? We don't have numbers. It's really hard to determine literacy numbers, percentages of the population. But still, there were a lot of people buying these books. And guess what kind of books were really, really popular? Books about popular travel destinations. It's like a handbook. If Susanna is going to go to Mount Tai in Shandong province and wants to know, well, what's there? Where do I eat? Where do I get a room? How far is it? These kinds of travel books were published. And all of these destinations, the most popular ones, had a handbook available. It was just incredible. This was new in Chinese history. This kind of activity was very, very infrequent in previous periods. I find this wonderful and surprising to realise that in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, China had this thriving tourism industry. People are travelling for pleasure and guidebooks, I think of the Lonely Planet or the equivalents of today, were being produced at this period as well. Can you give us some sense of the scale of tourist activity? Yes, I can. I'm going to be referring to a passage in a book, an anthology of Chinese travel writing called Inscribed Landscapes. It was published by Richard Strasberg back in the 90s. And in the book, he presents an account written by a member of the gentry of the late Ming who goes to a famous mountain in North China. This was a famous mountain because emperors used to go there and make sacrifices for good harvests for good weather and things like this. Very, very serious place. It wasn't a tourist destination. But by the 1620s, its religious orientation, political orientation, had completely changed. Now it was a popular tourist destination spot. And in his account, I'm not going to read it because it's kind of long, 
But the tourism industry was proceeding at such a pace that when you got to this mountain, there were different package tours that you could take. If you wanted to be entertained by opera singers during the evening after your climb, you would go to this part of the resort. If you wanted to go to a house of ill repute, they had these different package tours. And there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands fleeing to these mountain sites, especially during holidays, such as Chinese New Year. It's just incredible. This is in the 1620s. This is a totally new development in Chinese culture. Now, most of these folks were not producing travel writing, but members of the gentry like this particular author and people like Xu Xiaoke, when they would go to these places, they were appalled because of all the graffiti they were seeing and houses of ill repute on a sacred mountain. Blasphemy. What's going on here? So it's really a lot of fun to read how dissatisfied they were about some of the popular tourist destinations. This one particular place that he went to had over 200 servants in the dining hall serving people dinner. Massive. How can toilet training cows help save the planet? Should we start renting our clothes? And why on earth is Beds from the Happy Mondays now keeping bees? I'm Jimmy Doherty, TV presenter, farmer and conservationist. And these are just a few of the questions we'll be answering on my new podcast on Jimmy's Farm from History Hit. Join me on the farm to hear from the likes of the founder of the Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith. It is only people who don't know what they're doing that can do marvellous things in some areas because received wisdom will sometimes you'll talk yourself out of it if you've got lots of people who've done it before. Professor Dieter Helm on how to stop climate change. There may be all sorts of products like avocados and everything will have palm oil in it, etc. And these have not just long distances involved in it, but they're not actually producing what could be produced on the land and the frame that it's set. And my old friend, Jamie Oliver. I think I was stupid enough, naive enough, and unspoilt enough about the world that we live in. Listen to On Jimmy's Farm now, wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, you have given some examples in your book of different forms of travel writing. And one of them that seemed really interesting to me was a kind of trend that at first glance, at least to me, seemed diametrically opposed to the idea of travellers' movement, which is setting up these vignettes. Let's just hear one about a snow scene on Westlake. In the twelfth month of the fifth year of the exalted Providence reign, I was staying at West Lake. There was heavy snow for three days, completely cutting off all sounds of man and birds from the lake. After the first watch had passed, clad in a large fur overcoat and holding a small brazier, I took a small boat and alone headed off to the Lake Hart Pavilion to marvel at the snow scene. A boundless expanse of hoarfrost covered the trees. The sky merging with the clouds, hills and water Above and below was a blanket of white. The only shadows on the lake were cast by a trace of the long embankment and my single mustard seed boat. In the boat it was only me and two or three specks. When I reached the pavilion there were two people there sitting across from one another on a felt rug. A servant boy was preparing some wine which had just warmed. When they saw me they were greatly surprised and said, how could this fellow be out on the lake as well? They pressed me to join them in a drink. I drained three large cups and then took my leave. I asked their names and learned they were from Jinling and had come to do some sightseeing. When I got back to my boat, the boatman mumbled, say not that my lord is crazy, for there are those who are just as crazy. Now talk to me about that beautiful vignette, because what can it tell us about their attitudes to travel at this time, and indeed the elite culture? A lot of travel writing before the Ming Dynasty was serious. I say serious in the sense that when a typical government official or even a gentry member would go to a historical site, there was a pattern to the text that they would write. There would be an introduction. There would be a description of the physical appearance of the site. Then there would be an author reaction to being at the site and seeing it. 
walking through it. And that format was followed almost all the time. And typically, the author reaction was very lyrical, was very emotional. For instance, if a traveler went to the site of a famous battle, in his author reaction, he might voice concern about what happened to, say, a famous general at that battle and what may have happened had he not been killed and so forth and so on. So there was always some kind of an emotional charge or reaction. It changed in the late Ming. It changed when a lot of travelers didn't take themselves or their travel experiences all that seriously. In other words, the idea was, let's lighten up a little bit. Let's have some fun. Now, the passage you refer to refers to, his name is Zhang Dai. He lived in the late Ming, and he was visiting a very famous scenic city in South China called Hangzhou. I lived there for two years. I know Hangzhou well. And there's a famous lake there called West Lake, Xihu, and it's gorgeous. But it's a summer destination. But he's there in the wintertime, and there was a blizzard. And rather than staying at home by the fire, he decides to take a trip out to one of the little islands in the middle of West Lake. Crazy, right? So... These vignettes, these Xiaoping went, where an author simply looks at his experiences and sort of chuckles to himself. And in this case, the chuckle was, what the heck am I doing out here? What's most fascinating about Chinese travel writing is every author reacts in a different way. There are no two pieces of travel writing that exist that are the same. The author reaction part, that got too serious for people like the author of this piece. And he's taking a step back and saying, come on, why not go out to the island in the blizzard? Check it out and see what's going on. Rather than engage in some argument about what Confucius said about snowing and what people should... No, 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 not at all. This is the fun part of travel writing. Every piece you read is different. One of the acknowledged masters of late Ming travel writing is... And apologies for the pronunciation, but Yang Hong Dao, 1568-1610. And one of the things I thought was amazing about his work is the extraordinary beauty of language in your translation of it, the use of simile. The ones that particularly I loved of a mountain chase bathed in sun-drenched snow, he says, its fresh, vivid and brilliant charm seemed like a beautiful woman who had washed her face and just combed her hair into a bun or wheat fields that look like horse manes. What should we make of this wonderful rhetorical skill? We should make that he is a supreme wordsmith. He is one of those authors that I referred to earlier who can take language and manipulate it with simile. No illusions, no historical with an A illusions, no illusions, no hackneyed language, no cliche-ridden language, but taking adjectives as you just described, and weaving them into a word picture. The reference you made to the horse mane. I mean, if you close your eyes for a second and just use a little imagination, you can see that. This is the word picture come out like a beautiful woman who had just washed her face and put up her hair. How does that apply to the physical scene of a landscape? Again, if you can close your eyes a little bit and imagine what that was like, you get a word picture. And that's how we distinguish the really good travel writers from those who are in the middle. And he is a supreme craftsman of language. And not all travel writers can write like that in China. 
Shishiaku, our friend from earlier, he was a skilled wordsmith, but not on the level of Yuan Hongdao. But Shu Zhaoke is writing at the same sort of time, and he's doing something else which is incredibly interesting, which is this flourishing of travel writing in a style you characterize as geographical investigative. Tell us about this. Another development, a social and intellectual development during the Ming period, I think we could call it critical thinking. Some authors became very interested in promoting critical thinking. Now, we said that the experience of travel expanded tremendously in the Ming period. And many of these travelers were government officials still, more concerned than their predecessors about accuracy. Now, you remember those little handbooks we talked about when Susanna goes to Mount Tai in Shandong province that she's going to want to buy a copy? Well, a lot of those books that were published before the Ming were inaccurate, based on hearsay, based on stories told and retold about famous places that weren't true, just people's imagination. Well, quite a few of these geographical investigative authors during the Ming would go to a place, would read all the previous reports about the place, geographical treatises and so forth. Then they would go there and say, well, wait a minute, that's not right. Or that description really doesn't fit this place. Here's a better, more accurate one. So it's critical thinking. There's an author in the book I talk about, Wang Shixing. He is an incredibly serious scholar about getting the geographical descriptions correct. He's not literary in the sense that Yuan Hongdao is, but he's more or less, let's get things right about this. He went to one famous mountain that had a Buddhist tradition associated with it and had reports about sightings of Buddhas and magic clouds, just a bunch of baloney. None of this is true. This is just people's imagination. Sort of like what we call now investigative reporting rather than strict travel writing. But again, this is just one aspect of the different trends or paths that Ming writers were going down. A lot of them liked the vignettes. Others like geographical investigative writing. Xu Xiaoke, he just loved to travel, and he spent his whole life traveling. And actually, he is responsible for some very important scientific work. Tell us about his famous discovery of 1638. He was from a place in China that is very near modern Shanghai. In other words, on the coast of China, about halfway down, right at the mouth of the Yangtze River. The places that he most wanted to go to were the inaccessible places. The places that were way out in the southwest, like Sichuan, or down in the southwest. I'm going to drop a couple of Chinese names. There are two provinces that are in the very south and southwest of China. One is called Guangxi, and the other one is called Yunnan. He wanted to go there for a whole bunch of reasons. First of all, he wanted to find the source of the Yangtze River. He had read in the old books. It's in place X in North China. And he goes, I don't think that's right. I'm going to go investigate it myself. And he did. And he did find the source of the Yangtze River. And it wasn't where the old book said it was. He was also interested in what I call in the book caverns or caves. These are limestone formations, which are everywhere in southwest China, especially in Guangxi and Yunnan provinces. So he went there 
and conducted an investigation of hundreds of these caves and kept very, very precise descriptions of what he saw, distances, directional orientation, all the scientific information, which modern scholars seem to have confirmed that he was really pretty accurate in his descriptions and conclusions of these caves. The word in English, Suzanne, it's not a word that most people know. It's K-A-R-S-T, karst, limestone caves, with stalactites and stalagmites going in all kinds of different crazy directions. Some of them are massive. And even in some European publications, Shushaku is referred to as the father of karstology. At the entrance to the cavern is a hermitage, hidden in pitch-black darkness. Suddenly we turned and headed northwest, where unexpectedly there was a passageway. Above it formed a dome, below it was flat. Inside were numerous aligned stalagmites, hanging down like suspended columns, crispy and cool, dripping and leaking. This is the upper cavern, which is Seven Stars Spire. From the right, we proceeded in stages downward, where we thereupon entered the lower cavern. This is the Nesting in Roseate Clouds cavern. It is spacious and sonorous, grand and imposing. Its entrance also faces the northwest. Looking out into the distance, the view is grand and sublime. On the ceiling of the cavern, there is a single crack that runs across it. The stone carp there seemed like it was about to leap down from the crack, covered in scales from head to tail. Even if someone had carved a stone to fashion such a carp, it could not so closely resemble a real one as this does. Next to it are intertwined canopies in the shape of coiling dragons, stunning, scintillating and pentacolored. To the northwest, a storied terrace rises high aloft in layers. We ascended in stages following along its fringe. This is Venerable Lord Terrace. From the terrace we headed north, where the caverns seemed to divide into two sections. To the west was a high terrace. To the east it followed along the interior of a deep ravine. Proceeded along the terrace and then entered a single gate, and then went straight north until we reached a pitch-black area. Above was a dome without any cracks. Below was a sunken depression where a pool had formed. The wall of the huge cavern was split into two halves. What had been flat suddenly turned dangerous. It's amazing! And he didn't have a compass. Even though compasses were available in China a thousand years before Shi he didn't have one as far as we know. And yet all his directional observations and distances are correct. So we've got this combination of producing what is as you say, is precise empirical evidence without modern measuring instruments, but also doing so with extraordinary topographical detail and sometimes quite lyrical detail in terms of the descriptions of the stalactites or the stalagmites. Yeah, it's just amazing. But again, I'll drop a word that I used earlier. He was a wordsmith. He could be highly emotional and lyrical about the beauty of a landscape, or he can flip a switch and go into his geographical investigatory mode and start reporting on karst formations and the diameters of the stalagmites and how far they are from this and that. It's quite amazing. Joseph Needham from Cambridge 
is probably the most famous scholar of the history of science in China. He wrote this massive encyclopedia called The History of Science in China. He praises Xu Xiaoke, and this is a big deal from Joseph Needham, right, as being one of the real first sciences of topography, geography, and geology in China. So... What should we conclude was the purpose of travel writing? What insight in the end do you think it gives us into the cultural and imaginative world of the late Ming? That is a great question. I'll just give you my view. I'm sure others might have other different views. This is maybe a cliche, but these travel writings provide a window. If we want to know how people thought and saw the world at a particular time in Chinese history, let's use the late Ming Dynasty as an example. I would argue that if you would just sit down and spend a couple of days reading through these travel accounts, I think you can get a very, very good idea of what was important to these people, how they saw the world, what their values were, what graffiti on Mount Tai, this sacred place, what the heck's going on? Our culture is falling apart. You can get these kinds of insights. And where else can you get them? Those who write social history rely on all these static, pre-structured accounts of what life was like in a certain place. Or even modern social historians writing about what life was like during the Victorian period in England. Well, I would argue that you can get a better idea of what folks during the Victorian period thought about movement and travel by reading some of the travel accounts that a lot of, especially young Englishmen, wrote. There was a period there where young Englishmen were expected to backpack around Europe, see the world as is, then come back to England with a worldview. Well, if you want to get insight into this worldview, I think travel writing is one tool that you can use, and it's a primary source. It's not a third person writing about what life was like in China during the Ming Dynasty people who actually lived at that time. And I think a lot can be mined or gleaned from those accounts. Yes, yeah, so we can join contemporary readers and learn everything about the empire without ever leaving home. That's it. If you read enough books, you don't need to travel. But as Dr. Johnson says, if you have the means to go, go. Thank you so much for joining me today on Not Just the Tudors. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age 
a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.